This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. Uh, and with me, as always, is Maxwell Bogue. Hey, Joris. How you doing today? I'm good, Max. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. And who do we have on the pod today? Well, today uh, we've got Gordon Stiles on the 3D pod, and Gordon is a true 3D printing pioneer. Uh, he started uh, building what, one of the first, world's first service bureaus, really, and it became uh, one of the largest service bureaus in the world in the UK. For rather surprisingly, picking up everything and uh, establishing a Star Prototype or Star Rapid, it was you know, before in, in China, actually. Uh, so he's, he's gone through many entrepreneurial lives and a true uh, pioneer, and uh, I think he's got some really interesting stories to tell us. Uh, welcome to the 3D Pod, uh, Gordon. Um, great to be here, guys. Thank you very much for having me on your pod. Okay, anytime, anytime. Yeah. So, so, yeah, first... So first off, uh, Gordon, when you started, it was a very, very long time ago for, for uh, 3D printing. You were one of the first people to start a service bureau. When, when was that and why did you get started? Well, if anyone who watches my latest videos will see how much gray hair I've got, then uh, <laughs> you can imagine I, I got going a little while ago. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I bought my first 3D printer in 1993 and I'd already sold out my 3D printing company by 2000 years, probably a decade before most people even realized that 3D printing was even a thing. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a while back. So yeah, there's a few story, just stories to go with that. What did, you, no, what did you have for your first printer? In 1991, I was watching our technology program in the UK called Tomorrow's World. Um, and uh, uh, British Aerospace had bought an SLA 250 into the UK. And um, I, I watched it and I was absolutely blown away by it. It just looked like some kind of way out there star trek kind of magic and um, a couple of years later i got pretty sick of my little jobbing engineering company and um, i just decided one day i, I got you know i, I want to look at this 3d printing thing see if i can get involved in it so I, I got in touch with 3d systems down in london went down there and had a look at an sla 250 they had in the showroom and um, i said to the guy uh, i'll take that I want that. That's amazing. How much is it? He said that, well, it's, he said normally it would be uh, £250,000, uh, but this one's going for £168,000. And I said, yeah, yeah, I, I want that. He said, so how are you going to pay for it? Uh, I said, well, I don't know because I haven't got any money. <laughs> so it's like, um, and actually uh, years later in 2004, so this is like more than a decade later, he ended up working for me, this guy, Andrew Chantrell. Uh, I ended up, he was the managing director of 3D Systems. Maybe you know Andrew. But um, he ended up working for me in another company. And I remember him saying over a pint of beer, he said, when you turned up there with your girlfriend and your baby in tow, and uh, you said, yeah, I want to buy it, and you hadn't got any money, he said, I thought, this guy's insane. He's never going to buy a, a machine. And he said, you ended up being our best, best customer um, in the UK. So... I love kinda... it though. So you 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 basically tried to buy the showroom floor model, huh? To to get a discount. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I wanted to get it in a hurry. Right. I, I yeah. said, you know, how, how quick one of these things? He said, oh, it'd be six, twelve months. He said, everybody's they're very very popular, which which they were actually globally speaking. Mm. And um, but yeah, I I spent about six months putting together a 
business plan, getting some venture capital. And by late, sort of end of '93, I'd got about five hundred thousand pounds together, and uh, I placed an order with him. He, he nearly fell off his seat. He, you know, spat his coffee out, kind of thing. And, uh, <laughs> and literally a week later, we were in business. A week later, we had that machine trained out to use it. I go for the stink of the laser and the stink of the resin, you know. So, mm. and we we just got on with, you know, making the very early parts, you know. And who back then was really the clientele? Who was looking to make three D printed parts, or did they not even realize they wanted parts that were three D printed? They just wanted parts. I th- I think the, the vast majority of people didn't even know it was a thing. I mean, I right. I remember, you know. We we did enormous amount of public relations activity from '94 through about '97 '98. Ended up on uh, World myself three times. That was the technology program in the UK, and that really blew it wide open. Um, te- we were doing like medical models and uh, doing obviously the te- technology pro- products. But uh, my first customer actually for this entire thing was Hasbro, the toy company, yeah. um, and actually. Yeah, after we spoke last, I was thinking about what was the very first thing I made for them. And it was actually a Play-Doh extruder. So it's basically a toy where you put some Play-Doh in, you know, you press the button and it comes out through different shapes, right? Right. And I, it was actually, I was thinking back and it was actually before I even got my, my machine in the week before it arrived. And I actually subcontracted the 3D CAD work and the 3D printing to uh, Malaysia, believe it or not. Um, Yeah. And this guy catted it up and sent it back. But then Hasbro actually was also one of our very early clients. Um, And uh, we did Cindy Starship and Action Man Chopper. And, you know, in the early days, they didn't even have 3D CAD, you know, so they were sending packs of drawings and we were having to get CADing up bureaus to CAD it up or we were CADing it up. Um, and the guys who did have some 3D CAD, uh, some, some early guys like uh, AMP, I think was one of our earliest clients, uh, Lucas Aerospace, uh, another one. And they would send through these 3D CAD files, but you couldn't put them on an email. So you had to put them on a DAT tape or some other media drive, uh, some other media. And they'd send them through by post. Then we would put them into a big, nice stack of drives. We had, you know, different media drives and we'd upload them to our silicon graphics machines and we'd we'd go from there you know hmm. and did you stick with with sla and 3d systems I mean, for a while you did because there's the only one out there right but but uh did, or did you branch out into other technologies well to begin with uh the three main technologies that, that you could almost call mainstream were uh obviously stereolithography 3d systems you had dtm back then DTM got bought up again by 3D Systems. They were doing uh, SLS, you know, selective laser sintering. Now, they weren't very popular in the UK. That was hugely popular on the continent, in mainland Europe. It was also popular in the United States. But SLS really didn't take off until, you know, I would say the mid-noughties, you know, um, in, in, in until this company called, um, I forget their name now, 3P, no, what was it? Anyway, Tim Plunkett had a company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Tim, that's right. So Tim Plunkett, which has his name has three T's in it, Uh, hence the three T RPD. Um, But he he made it quite popular in the UK. Um, But before that, you had also had FDM uh, from Stratasys, obviously. 
uh, and uh, but there were, you know, really the only one that was of interest to me was stereolithography because it was it was the most precise one. The material was awesome base for sanding and painting and texturing, uh, and it was very stable when you were making silicone rubber molds for vacuum casting uh, cast urethanes, you know. So that's why I loved stereolithography so much. It was, as a, as a precision engineer by background, that's why I like stereolithography. And the fact that we had to make silicone molds. Really, anyone who's really good at vacuum casting will, will turn, their, you know, turn their back on SLS because of the porosity of it. You know, as soon as you pull a vacuum, you're going to start pulling the paint up, blistering stuff, you know. So you end up having to backfill the SLA in a vacuum, in a tub of resin to, to sorry, the SLS, I should say, to get it to not be porous. You can't really use it. And FDM, again, you can't use for vacuum casting. So, so for me, the only real mainstream system back then was stereolithography. Of course, now you've got, you know, the, the sort of, multi-jet fusion systems, which are a lot better for it. But still, I love SLA. Even today, I, I won't buy anything else for my, for my masters, you know. Hmm. And the things like, so, so vacuum casting, masters, those are the big businesses for you at the time? Did you, did you guys use innovation to get ahead? Or how did you, or marketing? Or how did you get ahead in that time? Yeah, so we actually, um, so I was a precision engineer. And everybody else who was in the market weren't. They, they came at it either as model makers or as technology guys, and they were enamored by the technology. So, but for me, I expected components to be precise. I was probably the first person in the world who actually started to do uh, a thorough inspection of components to make sure they're actually all the features were there and they were all the right size. And we worked very hard on, on tuning our machine, calibrating it, the lasers in such a way that we were making quite high precision parts uh, consistently uh, better than 0.1 millimeter, which you can do a lot better now with the upside down stereolithography machines. You know, you can half that, you know, and the Envision Tech machines, things like that, but they're actually very precise. Uh, but back then, we were really experimenting with how to tune these machines. Now, um, I also brought vacuum casting in-house. Now, we were the first commercial bureau in the world that I'm aware of that actually had stereolithography and cast urethanes vacuum casting under the same roof. Certainly in the UK, we were. And we worked very, very hard to try and make the parts that came off vacuum casting look like real injection moldings. So to do that, what we had to do was we had to make sure the parts were sized correctly. We had to make sure that we sanded them, painted them, and then using paint, actually uh, like polyurethane paint, actually texture the parts with some kind of what looks like a spark eroded texture. Mm. And, and then what we would do is make the silicon and pick up that texture. We then also did an enormous amount of work in the mid 90s in which dyes, whether it was it, you know, draftsman zincs or, or what other kinds of dyes we could find to find out which dyes were the most stable in polyurethane so that we could color them in mold and texture them in mold so that when they came out we didn't have to do any secondary finishing on the a surface of the part all we had to worry about was getting the gate off and the risers and things like that tidying up the inside and these parts really really looked like real injection moldings from even from the mid 90s and it, and it took five years or so for that 
concept to propagate across Europe. And, and certainly even, even by the mid-noughties, I was going around places in the US and still not seeing textured in mold and uh, colored in mold. And, you know, a lot of people were still painting their, their vacuum castings, made them look realistic, you know, and that's an enormous waste of time, money and effort, you know. I think at one point there was somebody who didn't actually believe that your prints were real or that they were actual 3D prints. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so we, we did these clamshells for a drill gun. And I actually went out and bought the real drill gun, took the clamshells off and put my clamshells on it so that I actually had a working drill gun, right? So I went over to France, I think it was 1995, something like that. We got invited by the uh, French Rapid Prototyping Association. The chairman of the association was there, and there was about 20, 30 guys in this room. We were all hungover. I mean, the French are very, <laughs> very, very liberal with their uh, hospitality. Let's put it that way. So I think they were trying to poison us all so that we didn't notice, you know, how boring the uh, event was. But um, I stood up and I, I, I showed this stuff off, and the guy got up. And he came over and he looked at it and he picked it up and said, that's an injection molding. This guy's a liar. Now, I didn't know what he'd actually said. I just saw all the people in the audience turn whiter than they already were. And um, Was there gasping? The guy Was there audible gasping? <laughs> uh, yeah, they were, they were like, whoa, you know. Because the French and the British don't get on very well. Right, no. So, um, <laughs> so I, I opened it up showed them the castings on the inside of course as soon as you looked on the inside you could see the the tessellation you know the, the stair stepping effect of the stereolithography master model that had made the silicone mold he was he was just shocked that this really was a, a vacuum casting and stormed out you know and um <laughs> and the british won another battle <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful that's beautiful yeah, that's good one. and and, and uh, and 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 so after that, well, you know, you became like the UK's largest service bureau, I think. And, and do you have any yeah. idea why? I mean, okay, you had some innovations. That's good, right? You you took a long time to do those innovations. I think that kind of patience is also good. But do you think there's other reasons what made you successful in that early period? Marketing. I mean, yeah? really? you know, yeah, this industry, yeah, yeah, this this industry has always been and will always be about marketing. And the reason for that is that we, we, we are literally like drug addicts in our industry. You know, uh, you, you get an order and then it's gone. You know, you work on it, it's gone. Then you have to get the next order and the next order and the next order. And you, it's almost like you're scrabbling around for the next fix. So the guys who are successful at this, and, and you can see it more and more and more today uh, with all the, you know, sort of digital platforms, the instant quoting guys and all these, I mean, these guys are literally, I mean, some of these guys have been funded to the tune of 100 million, 75 million, another one at 75 million. I won't say any of the names that you know who I'm talking about. These guys are throwing hundreds of millions of dollars at literally buying market share, and they do it pretty much exclusively through Google AdWords. Now, we didn't have Google AdWords back then. Um, I, I built my current company, Star Rapid, on Google AdWords to begin with. Now we use a lot of other tools. but Back then, it was traditional marketing. I mean, we were literally, um, we didn't have an industry magazine. Uh, and a, f a friend of mine actually created one, and it became Rapid News. And now you know it as TCT, okay, TCT Magazine. Now, um, the guys who bought Rapid News from my friend uh, 
actually came to me and said, look, we've got this magazine. And I said, yeah, I know. He said, we want to get going with this and we want to make it something. Um, but we've got no long-term advertisers and stuff. I said, okay, so how much would I have to pay to have a whole year, four quarter pages per issue every month in color? <laughs> Ooh. And the guy said, yeah, yeah. So the guy said, look, if you, if you give me 10,000 pounds, I will do that for you because I, I really need the cash now. Ah. And if I've got someone like you advertising, it will be like, you know, bait on a hook and we'll be able to draw in some people because um, uh, obviously you're one of the leaders in the industry. And so that's what I did. I, I sent him the money. And for that first year, we had four quarter pages per issue in color. It was the first color advertising in our industry in the UK. And that, that advertising campaign was so successful. It really was. And then it went on to, I had a PR consultant, uh, old, old lady called Sylvia Evans, wonderful old lady. She, she passed away a long time ago. Um, and she, um, she said, right, we're going to London and we're going to meet editors. I said, uh, that's good for me. She said, damn, this stuff's sexy. We've got to get this on front page of every technology magazine in the UK. And so we did. We went down to London and we did, we did breakfast with one editor, lunch with another, and uh, afternoon tea with another. And over a period of a week, I think we got through about 11 or 12 editors. And every single one of them, she said to them, you know, this is very technical, guys, very technical. He's very tech. Good engineer is Gordon. He can write a few words for you. Just tell us how many words you need. And they'd be like, I need 200. I need 500. I need 1,000. And I basically had to write the same story like 11 times yeah. at different lengths send it through <laughs> seriously and they they printed them verbatim right i mean literally oh, oh, yeah. they yeah. they and just printed it you know and that led to bbc that led nice. to three times yeah. on the technology program uh inside back page of the engineer which is a, a, a huge coup because inside back i was the first engineer who was not a qualified engineer i didn't have a degree to be on the inside back page of the engineer magazine and um and we, we, we made news at 10 on BBC where uh, a stereolithography skull literally appeared instead of the globe in the middle of the studio. It was one of the vir first virtual globes they had in the studio. They had, they had the bloody skull rotating in the middle of the studio. I, when, I, when it came on, I was sat at home with, uh, with my friends and my, my, my wife and that. And this thing came on. I went, oh, my God, they replaced the globe with the skull. Oh, that's insane, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and the next few days was just crazy because because I, I had pe people ringing up from all over the UK and one guy rang me up. I have to tell you the story. This is insane. I, I was sad in a way, but the guy rang me up. And he said, um, "Could you could you kind of do 3D printing of of like a dog?" And I said, "A dog? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Have you got a model or anything?" No, I've got the actual dog. I said, "Okay, <laughs> well, well I, we'd have to." scan it or something like that i said so so where is this dog it's in the back garden i, I buried him a few years ago <laughs> and i'm like dude i, th I think you need a taxidermist i, I don't think i'm going to be able to help you, you know, it was sad but you know he obviously loved his dog you know <laughs> Don't we all? Uh, and, then, <laughs> and then, and how did you? So in the beginning, you were very. There was just a, a very few people, small team. Then later on, you grew out to be a quite la uh, larger team. I mean, for a lot of startup nowadays, yeah. we hear about scaling and and then getting bigger like that. Was that painful? Or you know, my experience, it's usually quite painful. These kind of processes. 
Um, well, we were 73 people when I sold the company, so it wasn't that big relative to big. the size of today's companies, you know. Yeah. For the UK, that's pretty big, actually, and especially for a manufacturing, like a little engineering company. I mean, today we have 250 people in China. Now, that is a challenge. Right. Because on to, on to, if it was 250 people in the UK, that would be relatively straightforward to manage. But he, out here, it's a whole different sort of uh, kettle of fish. Yeah. You know? yeah. So, so how did you end up out there? I mean, so you're you're happy in the UK. You're you're doing your engineering company, and all of a sudden, somebody wants to buy it, right? In fact, I wanted to build another factory alongside my 3D printing factory that was a rapid tooling factory, you know, making aluminium molds quickly, you know, blah, blah, blah. You can think of a few famous names who do that now. And the guy, the VC said, there's no future in that. This will never, ever be popular. In fact, we think within three years, 3D printing will cease to exist when virtual reality takes over. <laughs> so when you're fighting... So very accurate. VC, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so he he nailed it, didn't he? Mm -hmm, um, I mm -hmm. think he's uh, I think he works for Mid Middlesbrough County Council now, sweeping roads, you know. Um, <laughs> so so this yeah he he really got that one wrong, um, and I told him so uh, about five years ago at a conference when I saw him. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, this guy got it wrong, but I couldn't get the money out of these guys. I needed a million pounds. Right. I mean, can you imagine trying to raise, what, one and a half million bucks in America for 3D printing in the year 2000? They'd literally have been, why do you only want a million and a half? How about 10 million? What, what, yeah, give me 10, 10. Do you not have any ambitions, you know? <laughs> yeah. But UK is a different, UK is very backward when it comes to the financing of, of anything to do with uh, real business, you know? Um, and of course, if you imagine it was, they were, I mean, if, I, if I'd walked in with a dot-com business plan i could have raised 10 million on a business plan yeah. without even having to have an actual business back then and it wasn't that crazy in 1999 it was insane trying to raise money for anything real back then um but anyway i said uh, along came arc a-r-r-k who were they were the daddies in that industry back then uh, uh they've subsequently failed and ended up being um taken over by the Japanese state. You know? um, they, they, they've atrophied to almost nothing now. But they were the big guys. I mean, they were buying, at that, I think, within a year of buying me, they bought 20 companies in China alone. I mean, it was insane. Yeah, so they bought me out. I didn't get a huge amount of money, but it was enough to, okay, I can start again. So I started a, a five-axis CNC machining company, kind of going back to my roots as a precision engineer. And um, then in 2005, you know, we started losing this contract and that contract, and that contract for ultra low price competition from China. Um, and it was just insane. I mean, you know, we, we would be doing for 250 quid and someone in China could do it for 25. And, and obviously that's not real. And, and it all ended up being calamitous for all these people uh, who, who were going out there buying this stuff. The way at this point, um, Never, ever, ever blame China for China because China, <laughs> Chinese companies don't know anything about sales and marketing. Predominantly, they, they, they have no clue about it, even today. We went out there, Westerners went out to China, and we dragged that product kicking and screaming out of those factories. They, they didn't really even want to do it. The government was kind of keen that they'd let foreign 
buyers in to buy whatever China was offering, you know. So it, it, we, you know, any any complaints anyone has about China, they, they are all self-inflicted wounds by the West. You know? um, <laughs> so I just didn't want to make that point. No, but, no, um, no. Anyway, so anyway, I I, uh, I was doing that. I put all my money into that company, this company called Springer Rapid. And um, we basically went out of business. It, it only took six months and we were empty and we had nothing. And I just said, right, guys, we're, all, we're shutting it down. And I had about 10,000 pounds left. And I decided, I said to my mother, I said, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm done with the UK. I'm done with this back, backward mentality. I'm, and you know, if, if China's the place, I'm going to go and find out. So I got on a plane, went out to China, spent two weeks out in China, running around looking at 3D printing companies as it happened. Because I thought, let's go see if there's 3D printing out there. You know, that could be pretty exciting. And I I realized that, you know, you couldn't make anything in China decent for 10% of the price, but for half the price, you could. And um, I thought, yeah, I could do this. So I went back home, wrote the business plan, started the company in uh, uh, Hong Kong, because you couldn't start right. companies directly in China yeah. at that point. Uh, you can now. And then, um, yeah, I got on a plane, came out here, and um, my first stint here was about seven months long. And within two months, I was profitable. Uh, I mean, I just started trading. Was this all going on in like Dunguang in that area? Or like when you first got there, is that where you were seeing most of this happening was in southern China? Yeah, all the prototyping. And then they moved over the border into Shenzhen. Guys went, Chinese guys started working for them, learned how it worked, sprung out, started their own companies. Guys sprung out, started their own companies. And before you knew where you were, you know, by the time I arrived, there must be a thousand companies. Yeah. in the Pearl River Delta doing CNC machining of ABS. And it was almost all ABS at the time. I mean, everybody was doing ABS. Um, but there were a huge number of 3D printing machines here, a, a disproportionate number. And I was kind of surprised as to why there were so many 3D printers. And yet it seemed so difficult to get anything 3D printed. And it turned out the government had actually bought a lot of machines and put them into these government-owned institutes to kind of prime the pump, so to speak. And then they try and get guys to come in and run these institutes for them on a commercial basis. But then when the, when the lasers ran out, they were faced with a bill for twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 for a new laser. They, they were like, nah, forget that. <laughs> and what they would do, they'd, they'd replace them with show lasers. And they'd fill the tanks up, not with resin, but with paraffin. And they literally have a half-built part in there just to run the show laser on. You know, it was just, it, it was just like insane, a laser pointer, you know? essentially. Like, yeah, basically just a, just the sort of laser you, you'd you'd put a little show on a building or something. You know, right. they they just put some cheap cheap little <laughs> laser in there and keep the mirrors running. And it was, and so nobody. And the price, the price of a 3D printing was two, three or four times the price of a CNC machined model out of solid ABS. I mean, the, the economics just seemed bizarre when I arrived here. I never really got my head around the economics of ABS CNC machining. And so I, I came out to sell 3D printing and couldn't because... Actually, the price I could buy it at was more than you'd pay a guy in the UK or the US. And I thought, and, and plus there'd be three, four days shipment time. So in the end, I was saying, okay, let's do CNC machining. And, and that's basically what I did ever since. I, mm. Although I 
am known as a sort of a rapid prototyping or rapid tooling, whatever company, you know, 98% of everything I do is CNC related somehow or injection molding. It's, it's certainly not uh, uh, plastic 3D printing. I only use plastic 3D printing here for vacuum casting. So they never leave the country. They always they stay in the country, and it's the vacuum castings get shipped abroad. I was going to say, who do you see as Star Rapids' main clientele now? So we typically are ninety seven percent export, and um, we're working, you know, maybe about forty percent for the US, twenty percent for the UK, a bit of Germany, Australia, and so forth. Um, we are typically working for sort of middle sized companies, uh, so fifty to five hundred employees or a division that is that kind of size, uh, mostly in the medical and electronics industries. And um, yeah, uh, low volume production mostly nowadays. What are some other technologies that you think will be uh, really interesting or that you're looking at at the moment? Actually, one of the ones I like the most uh, is the, I can't remember the name of it. It's the uh, the, the DMG Mori, oh God, I can't remember the code. Yeah, that the, the powder, the focus yeah. powder with the laser, and then then it's on a five-axis CNC machine. I mean, that is just unbelievable. And I, I think you're going to see so many cool applications in uh, in aerospace, for example. So they're hybrid, you mean? Love the hybrid. I think they call it the DMG more. Not the hybrid one. What do you? Which one? Ah, they, yeah, it's a hybrid. It's basically a five-axis CNC machine yeah. with a, yeah, that. Yeah, with yeah. a laser. I think and they call it the hybrid conical power flow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think that's a, that's the one. I, I always keep messing up because nobody knows they have like five different technologies. DMG Mori now. I, I keep confusing them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, okay, and, and and so you believe in these kind of technologies, and why why do you think they're so exciting that that, that you could do you machine on the same uh, on the same. Uh, uh, on your printer as well. Well, I think that particular one is because you can do uh, a vessel within a vessel within a vessel. And, you know, for for space mm-hmm. technology, for aerospace generally, that's very exciting because it's all about saving weight and they need to get mm-hmm. air flowing, uh, you, know, you know, one direction back on itself. And, you know, I think that's just fantastic. I've been studying the market for a long time and up until a couple of years, we noticed, for example, like, a, uh, like four or five years ago, a friend of mine tipped me off like, do you know this company called Shanghai King? So I'm like, never heard of them, right? And they were doing like, I don't know, let's say in excess of 10,000 SLA machines or something. And I'm like, what? How can I not hear of these people, right? And then you'd hear like periodically, like for example, like the, 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 there was this one service we had that 200 of these Xi'an bright laser machines standing there, right? And I'm like, what? But we don't log these guys' sales. Like, how do we know this? How do we figure out how, many, how do we figure out how do these people exist? You know, yeah. and there was all these companies that we had never heard of. And then I found out that rather than have like a one global three D printing market, we actually have a China market and a not China yeah. market. And there's couple companies like Xeon Bright Laser. They call themselves BLT, which I think is not good. But anyway, <laughs> they are kind of crossing over. Uh, then we've got Farsoon, yeah. of course. They have an international headquarters. Imtem, Sys again. They are companies that are in both of these markets. Tier Time before uh, did this as well. But apart from this, there's this huge burgeoning uh, 3D printing industry in China that we don't hear about. And part of it is patent cover, I think. Yeah. And part of it, these companies seem to just focus on the Chinese market. Yeah. It's like, forget it. Forget Europe. You know, Forget America. They, they, they just really want to focus on, 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 on their own market. So we never heard of these machines. So 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 uh it was really really kind of weird for me to see that how many like 
how many, like another friend of mine said at one point, the Chinese service bureaus, they only buy Chinese machines. You won't see like a AOS uh, machine here or something like that. Yeah, it's probably because it was sold to the government back when they were priming the pump in the sort of early noughties. Yeah. So, but a lot of people would be kind of a little bit afraid of, a, of, 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 you know, buying a Chinese machine, especially if it's like a, you know, a kind of expensive capital good, let's say. Mm. Uh, do you have a, like better experiences? Uh, no, no, I've only bought imports like Renishaw, for example, uh, and 3D systems. Um, the machines are actually pretty good from what I can tell. They're, they're basic, but they're good. They, if, if you know how to run it, if you know how to um, calibrate, you know how to maintain, uh, you buy a decent resin, you know, you, you can buy SOMOS out here, genuine SOMOS. You can also buy the fake stuff as well. Who, why would you? Um, but that said, most of these guys are making their own resins. You know, almost every bureau out here makes their own resins because they're actually really easy to make. Once you, once you know how to do it, they're not difficult. Now, I, 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 but they seem okay. But I mean, you know, you can buy a 600 millimeter machine, stereolithography machine for less than the equivalent of 50,000 bucks. But you're right about the market, by the way. There is China, then there is the rest of the world, and and this this and this is across everything. You know, um, someone said to me once, "Why don't you get a Chinese passport? You've been here so long." I said, "Well, what's the point? I'll always be a foreigner." It, you know, even if I have a Chinese passport, I'll never be Chinese. I'll always be a foreigner. Chi China is China, and the rest of the world is the rest of the world. That's how we see it. They group us all together. We are all foreigners. Have you found it a a good experience so overall in terms of opening a business there i know you've done some work with the local government to try and streamline it on some level right yeah so um living in china is absolutely fantastic particularly now during coronavirus because it's it's almost as if it didn't happen apart from like uh the, the beginning of last year yeah uh, everyone got locked up for you know, like five, six hundred million people got locked up for like two, three, four, five weeks, depending on where you were. Um, apart from that, nothing. You just have to take a, you know, a PCR test every now and again. Um, you have a green code. Everyone has to wear masks on public transportation or in public places, you know. So apart from that, we've just been doing our own thing. But generally speaking, living here is, is delightful. You know, the people are very, very uh, nice, polite, friendly. Um, there's rarely ever any trouble fighting. Yeah, there's a lot of fighting 15 years ago, but now it's, it's like nothing. Since Xi Jinping came in, all the gangsters got rounded up. All the all that kind of stuff's gone. You know, it's it's a it's a fundamentally different place today, even compared to what it was 10 years ago. Is a it isn't. It's like living in a different country yet yeah. again from what it was when I first came here. Um, infrastructure's awesome. Uh, so all that said, you know, the question is what it's like doing business here. Um, you know, I won't sugarcoat it. It is, it is brutal doing business here. It is tough because you've got 1.4 million people in a country the size of the United States all going at it. Everyone here wants to make it. Everyone. So any tiny little niche, boof, filled, and then a thousand people filling it. And everybody's clamoring to be the one that is successful in that niche. The entrepreneurial spirit here is just insanely high. They, they are all entrepreneurs. Everyone's, everyone's got a business idea uh, or they've already got a business. So it's, it's, it is very, very, very competitive mm. here. Um, I, I always have the joke that if you ask uh, a Hong Kong cab driver 
who the 10 richest men are in Hong Kong. They they all know it, and they will tell you off the top of their head. You know, Li Kai Shing and... Um, <laughs> yeah, Li Kai Shing. Francis Troy. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. And also, I think I noticed one thing. By the way, that you guys do you do uh, martial arts at the moment, and, and you do like, but you do actually you do Krav Maga, <laughs> which is like an Israeli oh, martial. Yeah, yeah you do a Israeli martial art. Uh, so, so tell us more about that. Well, it's always been my uh, dream to have a black belt in something. Uh, I, I actually did uh, Taekwondo when I was younger for a bit. Got a couple of belts in that, but never really got anywhere with it all. And then uh, about two and a half years ago. My son got into a few fights at school and he was getting bullied in, in the UK. So I brought him out here to China and I got this Israeli guy who I knew who actually happens to be in the next hotel room to me now because we're actually on holiday together. We're kind of doing a bit of Krav Magar on the beach tomorrow as well. So um, he, did, he spent 10 hours with my son sort of teaching him a few things, you know, how to take care of himself at school. And uh, that, that stopped the bullying when he went back. And after that, I was just so interested in it. Uh, I said, could I do some? And he's like, yeah, sure, of course. And that was like two and a half years ago. And I just completed 333 hours of training with, with Barry. And um, it's been great. I just got my brown belt. So I got about another year or year and a half to get to black. But it's been absolutely fascinating. It is a, so someone, <laughs> just to describe Krav Maga to you, someone said the other day, it's like 100 ways of hitting a guy in the, uh, in the yeah. crotch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. And I said, yeah, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> but, uh, oh, style, good. you're hitting people in the crotch with style with Krav Maga. <laughs> absolutely. And quickly, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So I built a I built a studio, a boxing studio, up on the top floor of my factory on the third floor. So I'm up there three times a week, uh, doing a couple of hours each time up, up with Barry, and then we get the whole staff up. So all the staff, yeah. So they all get one hour of paid uh, exercise per month, um, which I'm doing in association with the union. Uh, so basically, the union is paying for it, and I, um, they're paying for the tutor, and I'm paying the hour lost production. Right. And, um, so they get up there eight at a time. So Barry's giving them sort of self-defense classes, but it's all around sort of uh, uh, cardio, you know. So it's, it's it's punching bags, kicking bags, you know, skipping ropes, you know, um, games, you know. So it's 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 fun, you know, and it's starting to build up this kind of energy in the business. Guys are getting a little you can tell us just a little bit more energy. They also get guys to mix as well, because you know, anywhere in the world, if if you don't create opportunities for mixing across departments, you end up with silos in a business. And and one silo won't even know what the next silo even does. So at least I'm getting them you know, a little bit of uh, pad work, you know, where you, you get a guy from the engineering department and a girl from the finance department, you know, doing pad work together. And they're like, I don't even know who this person is, but, oh, I did pad work with you. You know, right. it's like, it's a way of getting them to mix a bit, you know. That's cool, man. And then what do you hope to achieve with the, the startup? Where do you hope to grow towards? So my goal is a productivity goal. Um, I, I, got to 311 people a few years back and I realized that the solution to everything in China because labor is uh, low cost is to just get more people and no matter how hard I pushed on 
uh, lean manufacturing, Kaizen, you know, all that kind of stuff. I was just getting nowhere with it because everybody would say, oh, just hire another guy, hire another guy. I'm like, no, no, come on. This is ridiculous. We can't just keep hiring people every time we need to get more productive or something. That, that's not more productive. That's just more production. So in the end, I said, right, I'm going to cap this business at 250 people. So we took out, you know, 60 other people in a period of about three or four months to get down to this 250. Basically, we, we cut from the bottom, if you like. And when we got to 250 people, we had more production than we did at 311. And I was like, wow, OK, so this is a good start. And since then, we've grown uh, you know, here and grown there, you know, whatever. I mean, this year we're growing about 30%, whereas last year we didn't grow at all in terms of actual sales, although we did get some more production out. Um, uh, because of coronavirus, you know, all the, the crashes in the West and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, we went, so what did I do? I said, right, we, we need to keep at 250. So when they said, I need 10 more people, I'm like, no. If 10 people are going to come in the business, 10 people somewhere else are going to go out of the business. So now I've got them negotiating, departments negotiating about, about who's going to let someone go so someone can come in in another department. And, and it can actually be quite intense sometimes. But I said to them, okay, what are, you, what are you trying to do here? Well, I need three guys for the night shift to put parts on those machines. I said, well, get a robot. Mm -hmm. why, why, why are we, get a palletizer. Right. Do something. I'm not going to go above 250 people. So my goal over the next sort of three or four years is to double production output without any additional work, uh, people in the company. Mm -hmm. So we've got a massive program going on at the moment on robotic process automation, uh, where we basically look at every mundane task in the business and see if we can uh, automate it. Um, we're also, I hired a, a scientist a couple of years back to do AI. And um, that's been insane. I mean, I never thought that I would ever even be in that field. And we've already patented seven what appear to be unique applications in our field um, and in the sales field. So so these these things, it's really pushing us. As we get more and more business and we get more and more busy, it's like, I need more people. I'm going to find another solution here. That's my goal. It's a productivity goal, certainly for the next three, four, five years. Maybe one day we'll grow the people again, but it'll be building on a solid foundation rather than just hiring more bodies, you know, which is never a good solution. Okay. Hey, uh, Gordon, thank you so much for your, your wonderful story. Thank you for being on the 3D pod. You're very welcome. My pleasure. And Max, thank you for being uh, with us as well. Yeah, no, likewise. This was a fascinating chat. Gordon, I hope you will join us again sometime. Anytime. Always a pleasure. And um, yeah, so and thank you so much for listening. Uh, thank you very much. And this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And my name is Joris Peels. Have a nice day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint.com.